Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, leading people into the Christ-centered life. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. Lord, as we come here today, Lord, as we gather together, as we fix our eyes on you, Lord, just in the power and the holiness and the beauty of this moment, we just invite you Lord, that as we look to you, as we put our hope in you, we thank you, Lord, that where there is doubt, you bring faith, and where there is discouragement, you bring encouragement, Lord, where there is anxiety, you bring hope, where there is sickness, you bring healing, that just as we've sung about the exchange and the the powerful name of Jesus, Lord, that you take everything that is of us, everything that is sinful, everything that is hurting, everything that is broken, and you redeem and you restore and you recreate because your name is Redeemer, that is who you are. And we put all of our hope in you today, Lord. And thank you that you just breathe on us this morning and you breathe your refreshing and your renewing and your recreating power onto us today. And that we are not the same, Lord, as when we came in. And you just, even as we are praying right now, are lifting off fear and are lifting off anxiety and are lifting off distraction and discouragement as we fix our eyes on you, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father in this place, in this house, Jesus Christ is Lord. And let every agenda and every power of the enemy and every sickness, let everything bow a knee to the Lordship of Jesus in this place as we look to you. And we say, Lord, now open our eyes to see you clearer through your word. Help us to understand your holy scripture and let your presence continue to rest with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can go ahead and grab your seats. Thank you, worship team, for faithfully leading us this morning. All right, we are going to be in Romans chapter 5. Grab your Bibles and meet me there. If you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the pew in front of you. It's page 1130 in that Bible. And we are in a bit of a sort of mini-series in the summer. We don't tend to do long, in-depth series over the summer months just because there's lots of people who are away and I'm away. And so rather than do uh, an in-depth series, we're just doing kind of a few weeks that tie together. And so we started last week with a message called The Tale of Two Trees. And if you missed that, you can go online on our website or our podcast and catch up there. Uh, we are continuing in that theme today. And as we get ready, I want to show you uh, a short video. This is an ad campaign, actually, from Domino's Pizza. You might remember it from a number of years ago. And Domino's had this reputation for a long time that their pizza was not very, shall we say, good to eat. And it wasn't the best quality. And so this is part of the ad campaign as they were dealing with that. Take a look. Pizza, where's the love? (laughs) How are bread, sauce, cheese, fresh ingredients? Doesn't feel like there's much love in Domino's pizza. Domino's pizza crust to me is like cardboard. Is it hard to watch Yeah, I hear what some folks are saying about our stuff. Oh, this one's bad. Worst excuse for pizza I've ever had. 
The sauce tastes like ketchup. Totally void of flavor. You know what, when you first hear it, it's, it's, it's shocking. The cardboard complaint is the most common one. This we hear over and over and over. I mean, that hits you right in the heart. This is what we've done, this is what I've done, you know, for 25 years now. You can either use negative comments to get you down, or you can use them to excite you and energize your process of making a better pizza. We did the latter. Most companies uh, hide the criticism that they're they're getting, and we actually faced it head on. Some people didn't get us credit for the, the taste of our product. That's what we're fixing. We listen to our consumers, and they want us to be better, and we want them to be happier. We want people to love our pizza. This is what's driving us. This is what's lit the fire under us. This is what's making us want to get better. Who are we? Pizza! It's been crazy down here. We had our best chefs. Working hard to find the best combination, looking at 10 crust types, 15 sauces, dozens of cheeses. You can't just add a little salt or add a little something to the recipe. I mean, we basically had to start over with a new recipe. We changed everything. The crust, the sauce, the cheese. Now it tastes better. We started working on the cheese. We've got shredded cheese. Cheese. It's cheese. It's tastier. When you smell it, it's got an aroma to it. I mean. This is what cheese should be. We started working on the sauce. New sauce is bright, it's spicy, it's robust. We've got garlic in here, we've got oregano, we've got basil, we've got um, and a little bit of red pepper just, just to tingle on your tongue. It's a bold flavor. When you bite into that, that's what pizza sauce should taste like. We started working on the crust. A nice, rich, buttery crust with some garlic and some herbs in there. It gives it a, a nice finish for you. Great taste from the first bite to the last bite on every single slice. Now we got great food, we've earned the swagger, right? We're gonna do an end zone dance on this one. I can't wait to have people try it. And it's not even about being right, it's about us having great food. No, it's about us being right. <laughs> and you know, I can't wait for Adrian to try our new pizza. Domino's Pizza. Hey. Adrienne? Yeah. I am Sam from Domino's Pizza. Hi, you ordered pizza? Hey, did you say these things in a focus group? Doesn't feel like there's much love in Domino's Pizza. You said that? Yeah. I happened to bring the head chef from Domino's Pizza. No, you did not. I'm sorry. <laughs> did you say that about our pizza? Wow, I did. I did. Don't be sorry. Your comments helped us to improve everything about our pizza. Try it. Can I? Please. Wow. Some love in there, isn't there's it? There's a lot of love in there. This is what I was talking about. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for making a great pizza, finally. <laughs> just one more knife in the chest before you leave. So besides being just a free advertisement for Domino's Pizza, you might remember those ads. This was eight or nine years ago. And I remember seeing the ads at the time, and they weren't that long, but just 30-second ads on TV where Domino's was saying, yes, we know our crust tastes like cardboard. Yes, we know our sauce tastes like ketchup. And so we've redone everything. And I remember at that time thinking, that's gutsy, right? And it's, it's a risky campaign uh, to be able to, to stand up in front of everybody and say, like, we sort of feel like we haven't done a good job. And so we are rebooting everything. We're starting from scratch. And it worked. Sales were up like 50% a year after this whole campaign happened. And uh, I always kind of liked Domino's Pizza before. I didn't think it was that bad. But they put this whole emphasis on we have to completely reboot and we have to completely restore. Uh, what we have been doing up until this point is not working. And so that's the reason I wanted you to see that today. And as we go through this little mini-series, last week we took some time uh, to talk a bit about our origin story. 
uh, tale of two trees, we went back to the garden, all the way back to the beginning in Genesis, the Garden of Eden, and we talked about our origin story because we talked about we can't really understand uh, why things are the way they are if we don't understand how it all started. And so we went back and we talked about Adam and Eve and we talked about their disobedience and how they were given a choice between doing it God's way and doing it their own way, and they chose to go their own way. And that is the human experience. There is no evidence to suggest that we would have done any better if we were back in the garden because Adam's story is our story. We have all chosen to go in a way that we shouldn't go in one way or another. And as we unpacked some of that story, uh, we talked about the consequences that fell as Adam and Eve crossed that boundary that God had said, don't cross. And, and there was problems that entered their relationship right away. There was a disconnect from God that happened right away. Uh, life became a lot harder. Work became a lot harder right away. And ultimately, death enters the world in that moment. Not because God is so mean and angry and wants to kill us, but just because God is the source of life and we chose to walk away from the source of life. And so God has created this amazing creation and we are, uh, Scripture says, his favorite part of creation. We're the best part in his eyes. And that sounds uh, maybe boastful, but that's what the Bible tells us. It says that we are the ones made in his image. There is no other part of creation that God loves as much as us. And when this happens, and when we follow in their example, as we all have of going our own way and ignoring God and choosing our own path and crossing the boundaries that he has told us not to cross, we have disconnected ourselves from him. We have broken our relationships with each other. And death is the end of the story because of what has happened here and the paths that we have followed, except that's not actually the end of the story. Because last week we talked about why things are the way they are, and this week we're going to talk about how God fixed it all. So let's take a look at our text. We're in Romans chapter 5, and we are starting in verse 12. The Apostle Paul is writing here, and he says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin... And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. That's sort of an aside comment that Paul just kind of sticks in here. Then he gets back to his main point. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more." So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All right. 
So Paul is a brainiac, and he writes that way sometimes, and this is kind of one of those passages. This is one of those passages where you read one sentence, and you're like, wow, there's a lot in there, and then he just keeps doing sentences like that. So when you put the whole passage together, there's a lot packed in there, and it's not always easy to understand, and then sometimes when the the Greek gets translated into English, it makes kind of weird sentence structures a little bit. So if we read that and you went, what does that mean? Don't worry. Uh, That's what we're going to do now. We're going to unpack that, and we're not going to do every part of every word, but we'll just hit some of the main things. So last week's sermon was a tale of two trees. This week's sermon is a tale of two men. There are two men in this passage, uh, and scripture would talk about it elsewhere. There is Adam and there is Jesus, and both of these men transformed the world in different ways. Paul would write about this later in 1 Corinthians 15 as well, and he would call Jesus the second Adam or the last Adam. There was the original Adam who sinned, and Jesus comes as the next Adam, and the first one caused problems. And the second Adam, the last Adam, comes to fix the problems that were caused. Uh, Bruxy Cavey puts it this way, that God created Adam and it didn't work out right. It didn't work out the way that he had wanted. And Jesus is Adam 2.0. Jesus is the reboot. Jesus is the complete redoing. We got to start from scratch and we got to figure out how to do this humanity thing right. Jesus is God's solution to reboot what was broken in the garden. Jesus comes to reverse everything that Adam did. And where Adam failed, and we fail with him because we have all followed in that path, Jesus fulfilled everything that humanity was supposed to be. Jesus lived the life that God always wanted us to live. And as Jesus does that, he shows us that it is possible to live a life that pleases God. And it is possible that even though we are uh, still walking in Adam's path to some extent, even though we still are, are pushing against sin and struggling against sin, Jesus has come to undo everything that Adam did. Jesus has come to redeem and restore everything that sin has brought into our lives as a negative consequence. Jesus fulfilled fulfills everything that God wanted fulfilled in humanity. And where we were walking in the example of Adam, now we walk in the example of Jesus. And he empowers us and leads us as we do that. So as the two are compared here, uh, Adam and Jesus, they are two men and they are sort of similar. Paul says in here that Adam is a pattern of the one to come. And so they are similar, but just because they're similar uh, does not in any way mean that they are equal. Jesus and Adam are not equal, just like Coke and Pepsi are not equal. They're similar, but they're not the same. Who's pro-Pepsi in this church? So you're wrong for the record. (laughs) We are a pro-Coca-Cola church here at Meadowbrook. (laughs) Why not be divisive? I don't want to be political here, but just to get us going. Similar but not equal. So Paul writes in verse 15, the gift of Jesus is not like the trespass. The thing, the gift that Jesus brings is not equal to the sin that Adam brought. Adam sins with Eve, and it releases all sorts of evil and sin and death into the world. But the gift is not like that. The gift is actually bigger and better than that. It's not the same. They are still two men, but one man is not exactly like the other man, because although Jesus is a man, he is so much more than a man. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. Like what Jesus did was so much greater 
The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. And so Adam screws up, and, and again, we would have done the same thing, and we do do the same thing, but it unleashed everything evil and wrong with the world. It broke creation. And yet in here, Paul is saying when Jesus comes, what he does is so much better, is so much bigger, is so much more important, is so much more powerful than what Adam did that it can't even be compared. It's just not even, they're sort of the same because they're both men. But throughout the passage, we hear how much more has Jesus brought? Adam did this, and we have done things too, but how much more is the gift of God? How much more is the power of God? How much more is the grace of God? It's the story of two men, but these men are not equal because Jesus and Adam are not equal. And where Adam releases sin and death into the world, Jesus releases grace and life into the world. How much more, how much better is Jesus than Adam? And as Jesus comes as a man, as, as God takes on human form and walks among us in Jesus, Scripture says in Hebrews 4.15 that we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. And so where we talked about last week, God creates Adam and Eve, and he creates them purposefully to, to walk with him and to be a part of creation with him and to walk in the garden with him face to face and to, to eat from the tree of eternal life and live forever with him in sinless perfection and innocence. And, and where we crossed that line and we broke that trust and where we disobeyed and we chose Satan's way. Uh, and again, Adam and Eve do that in the garden. We do that as, as humans. It's the human condition. As that happens, uh, Jesus comes down, and Jesus is the reboot, where God says, we have to fix this. We can't let this sin and brokenness and evil last forever. We need to fix this. And so Jesus comes, and he lives a life just like we live, and he experiences temptation just like we experience temptation, and he experiences heartache like we experience heartache, and he experiences pain in every level just like we experience pain, and he experiences the full human experience of what it is like to live in this sinful and evil and broken world, and yet he was without sin. Yet he is the one who doesn't cross the boundaries that God has set. So he lives the full human experience, except he lives a life perfectly before God. And that's something that Adam and Eve couldn't do. And Jesus comes and he does that. Jesus lives the life that God always wanted us to live in terms of loving him and obeying him and loving others and serving others and being obedient to what God wants from us. Jesus lives that life perfectly. And as he lives that life perfectly, he demonstrates to us that this is what God wants us to live like. This is what a life devoted to God, this is what a life lived out in love, this is what a life committed to the way God wants us to live looks like. And so it's no longer mysterious of what does God want from me and I don't understand how to live in a way that pleases him. Like that's all gone now because we just look to Jesus. How is it supposed to be lived? How are we supposed to be treating people? Uh, how are we supposed to be speaking? How are we supposed to be honoring God? We look to the life and the teachings and the example of Jesus because Jesus shows us what this life was supposed to be like. And yet, even as Jesus comes, it doesn't look like Eden because Jesus doesn't come into the perfect world before sin comes. Jesus comes into the sinful, broken world. 
And he actually experiences the consequences of sin, even though he has not sinned at all. He has lived a perfect life, and yet the consequences of sin, where there's evil and there's pain and there's heartache and even death, Jesus experiences all of that. And this is where part of the great turnaround happens, because Jesus was sinless. So all the consequences of sin should not have touched him. Right? Scripture says the consequence of sin is death, right? You've cut yourself off from God's life. So death comes into the picture at the end of a life story. The consequence of sin is death, and Jesus never sinned. So, I mean, theoretically, Jesus should have lived forever, right? There's no, there's no reason for him to die, and yet he willingly chooses to die. And Jesus stands up and says, all of those consequences of sin, the evil, the pain, the rejection, the heartache, and even death itself, Jesus says, put those consequences on me. I will pay the price of those consequences. And in God's standing, God was pleased to look at that and say, okay, if you pay those consequences, then everyone else will be released from them. And so when the sinless Savior dies, as we sing sometimes, my sinful soul is counted free. When the sinless Savior dies, death gets turned upside down. Jesus blows it up from the inside because he shouldn't have died. And when he willingly dies, God is pleased to look at that and say, death, you're broken now because the whole system just got snapped in half because an injustice was done to the perfect one. And because of that, God is willing to give his grace and mercy and undo everything that was done before. Jesus reverses everything that came into the world through Adam. And as this happens, there's a shift in reigns that Paul talks about. There's a shift of sort of what's in charge and who's in charge. In verse 17, if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? And so death is sort of in charge Paul says that when Adam is, is sinning and when the consequences of that fall, death is a part of it. And it is, it is the fear of life that drives humanity. And, and death is kind of there. We, just, we live this life and then we die. That is the, the, the sure thing. And yet, as Jesus dies and as that all gets reversed and undone, everything shifts. Because when Jesus sort of, as we've said, blows this up from the inside, and when he rises again from the grave, death loses its power. Because now death isn't the end of the story. Because it wasn't the end of the story for Jesus. And so Jesus says, follow me, and that is follow me in every way. Follow my example, follow my teachings, follow me in triumphing over death into eternal life. So for us, death is not the end of the story anymore. Death is not in charge anymore. And there's such a shift as you read your Bible. In the Old Testament, before Jesus comes, you have, you know, these cried, Lord, don't send me to the pit. Lord, save me from the snares of death. Like there's this very real fear of death because death is in charge. And yet after Jesus and through Jesus, there's a completely different tone for the rest of the Bible where Paul says, I can't wait to get out of here, to be honest. I can't wait to see Jesus face to face. I know there is more now. That way has been opened now. The path to the tree of life is no longer blocked anymore. Death is not the end of the story that I need to be afraid of. When Jesus is at the Last Supper, he's telling his disciples, I'm going to be leaving you. I'm going to be returning to heaven. And they're grieved. They're sad about this. And Jesus said, guys, if you knew where I was going, you would not be sad at all. You would be so excited for me. 
And that's not to say, of course, that we don't still struggle with death and, and fear and all those kinds of things. But, but death is no longer in charge. Death does not dominate the life of the Christ follower. As we know that death is the transition to something way better, the best days on earth are but a shadow, Scripture says, of what heaven is like. And so death becomes the, the transition into something far greater and far more glorious. And so there's been a shift in reigns. Death is not in charge anymore, and there can only be one in charge. We just went through an election in the States, and whether you're happy about it or angry about it, uh, Obama is not the president anymore, and George W. Bush is not the president anymore, Clinton is not the president anymore. There can only be one president at a time. Only one person can be in charge. Right now, that is Trump. And uh, pray for America, please, if you're not like crazy. There's lots of reasons they need our prayers right now. But only one can be in charge. And so Paul says, death reigned for a while, but now life reigns in Jesus Christ. Now Jesus is Lord, and now everything changes. And I know even as Christians, it's not that we don't go, oh, like we, we still can have our moments of fear and everything else, but we know there's something more. That's what our faith and our hope tell us, that this isn't the end. And if we die today, it's not the end of anything. It is the transition to everything that we hope for and everything that we trust, because Jesus has done that for us. And as Jesus comes, a man fixes what a man broke. Uh, I love this because uh, Jesus reverses everything that Adam did, but God could have done that anyway. God could have fixed things in any way, right? He didn't have to do it in any particular way. He's God. He could have just said, Satan, no, you don't get to do that, and we're just done here. But there was something in what God wanted to do because he's just, and again, because he loves us, because we are the crown jewel of his creation. And Paul writes in verse 18, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act, the cross, resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. And that's just such a great couple of verses. And where we talked about last week, Satan comes and deceives Adam and deceives Eve, and Satan has declared war on God, but can't really take on God because God is so much bigger and stronger that Satan has focused his wrath on us, Scripture says, because we're God's favorite. We are the thing he loves the most. And so Satan has geared his attack on us, and he has been doing it since the beginning. And again, God could have fixed this in any way, but I love that God looked at this situation, and it's like he said to Satan, I created man to be good, and you messed that up, but you don't get to have the final word on this because I created man to be good and mankind will be good. And so where a man screwed up and broke it and made all of this happen, God says, I'm going to use a man to restore it. I'm going to use a man to fix it all. And again, of course, Jesus is much more than a man. But God says to Satan, you don't get to ruin humanity. You don't get to do that. Humanity is going to be restored. And we talked last week about as soon as this happens, as soon as disobedience happens, as soon as sin enters the world, uh, God says to the serpent, to the devil, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And that's the first prophecy we have about Jesus to come. It's the first time, and I, I said last week, I love it so much because sin has been in the world for like five minutes. And right away, God says, I've got a plan to set this all right. 
And he says, out of the woman, you've deceived the woman, you've deceived the man, and yet out of them, one will come one day, and there's going to be just, it's never-ending conflict uh, in this life between Satan and us, and, and Satan's snapping at our heels all the time, he's biting our heels all the time, but one will come who will crush the head of the devil. One will come who crushes the head of the servant. And it's not going to be a, a glorious angel, it's going to be a man, the same man that Satan thought he could beat, that, that same line that Satan tried to destroy, God is going to use to redeem and restore. What one man broke, another man is going to come and fix, and God is going to set everything right, and through that we will be justified, uh, which is a theological word. It shows up a few times in this passage that we are justified in God's eyes. And justified means, this is kind of the Sunday school answer, but it's easy to remember, when we are justified, it's just as if I'd never sinned. That's, that's the heart of it. It's that we are, our slate is wiped clean. Uh, we sang about the blood of Jesus before that washes white as snow. It's that in God's eyes, sin is gone. And not just gone in the sense of like, I know what you did, but I'm going to forgive you, but it's still going to kind of hang there. No, like it's gone. It is just as if I'd never sinned. That's how good Jesus is to us. That as we ask for his forgiveness, this is the level of forgiveness that he gives us. That in God's eyes, it's just as if I'd never sinned. And that's not to say that, you know, when we have sinned, one of the things we talked about last week was uh, there's just natural consequences that happen. If I rob a bank, I might go to jail. If I, if I cheat on my wife, I might get divorced. And there's a reason God says don't do those things. So it's not that there might not be natural consequences, but in our standing with God, in the love of God, in the blessing of God, it is just as if I'd never sinned in God's eyes. Because scripture says there is one God and our relationship with him was broken, but then one mediator came to, to fix that relationship. There was one who came to bring us back together, and that was who? 99% right. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 2.5. There's just an emphasis here. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And there's times when scripture emphasizes Jesus' divinity and there's times where it emphasizes his humanity and this is his humanity, obviously. But it's important because there is one mediator between God and man where that relationship was broken. Jesus comes to bring us back together to, to mediate the forgiveness and the reconciliation so that we can come back to God. But as he does that, he's the perfect one and really the only one who can do this. If you think about if Chrysler is going to go on strike, if they're coming to the end of their contract and they're in a labor dispute and they don't want to go on strike and management doesn't want to go on strike and the union doesn't want to go on strike, they might bring in a mediator, right? Someone who's going who's to orchestrate and, and help both sides see the other side and reconcile so that the conflict doesn't happen, hopefully. And when you're looking for that mediator, you want someone who's going to be fair to both sides, right? Chrysler's not going to want someone who loves management uh, and is going to take their side. And management isn't going to want a, a super pro-union activist. You're going to want someone who can be fair to both sides because they have to bring both sides together. So when you're trying to mediate between almighty God and fallen humanity, how are you going to do that? Who is going to mediate between the two? It can only be Jesus. Because Jesus is both sides. He is both man and God. And so to us, he represents God's side, where we say we have sinned against God, and yet he also, Jesus, shows us what God is like. And as we look to him, as we look to Jesus, we learn 
that God is far more loving and far more merciful and far more gracious and far more patient and far more compassionate than we could have probably imagined on our own. Jesus makes God clear to us. He shows us God's side. And Jesus also brings our side to God because Jesus goes through the pain of this life and the death of his, this life. He experiences all of that. He experiences temptation. He experiences all of these things. And so he represents to God, hey, God, you know, we know what it's like now to walk among this earth. We know what it's like to feel heartache. We know what it's like to feel frustrated. We know what it's like to feel pain. And he represents our side to God. And yet Jesus does it sinlessly, and so he becomes the perfect one to bring the two sides together where there is conflict, because we can no longer say God doesn't get it. We can no longer say God does not understand, because Jesus has experienced everything that you have experienced in your life. And so God does understand. And now God can look at humanity and say it's not just about we're all sinners like Adam because Jesus lived the life he was always supposed to live. So it is possible to do that. And as our sins are forgiven, Scripture says, the Holy Spirit comes and empowers us to live the life we were always supposed to live. You don't belong to Adam anymore. You belong to Jesus. You are not a part of that problem anymore. You belong to Jesus. And, and while we would acknowledge that we still struggle, that we are not perfect yet, we do not want our identity wrapped up and we're just broken, fallen sinners. That's who we are. We're not that person anymore. We are followers of Jesus who still struggle with sin a bit, but who we are is justified, forgiven, redeemed works in progress that God is making new in every way. That is who we are now. And we will stumble and struggle a little bit along the way, but let's make sure we know which camp we're supposed to be in. We're not a part of Adam anymore. We are a part of Jesus. And this incredible grace gets released to us. And I love the last part of this because it just says there's always more grace than there is sin. Whatever your sin is, there is always more grace than there is sin. The law was brought in. We're going to talk about this a bit more next week. So that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we won't do this too much today, but when the scripture talks about the law, it's talking about the commandments. The Ten Commandments and many other commandments. There's actually 613 commandments, and you've broken most of them today already, even if you didn't know that. And so there are these commandments, and the commandments tell us God's expectation. This is what God wants from you. This is the life that you are supposed to live. And, and it sounds very sort of legally, legalese, and it is to some extent. But these are the boundaries that God put in place to say, don't cross these boundaries because it will hurt you. Right? We talked last week about the boundaries are here to keep us safe. The problem with the law, Paul would write about in Romans, is that although it shows us what God wants, it in itself doesn't help us to resist sin. It just shows us what the standard is. And so the problem with law is summed up in this picture. You go, you buy cookie dough, there's a, a big sticker on the cookie dough, do not consume raw cookie dough, right? Now what happens when you read, don't consume raw cookie dough? Some of you right now are saying, I'm going to hit the superstore on the way home. I'm going to get some cookie dough. And, right? There's something in us that, that don't do that. You're like, oh, that sounds really good, actually. 
Right? For years, churches said, we can't talk to our youth groups about sex. If we talk to them about sex, they're going to want to have sex. Like it's, it's the fear that if you draw attention to something, it's actually going to stir up sin. The Apostle Paul said, I didn't know what coveting was until I read, thou shall not covet. And then once I knew what it was, all of a sudden there was something very appealing about crossing that boundary. There was something in us that wants to cross the line into what we're not supposed to do. And just for the record, I read something this week that said raw cookie dough is fine, by the way. If you buy it in a prepackaged thing, it's already been tested and you're not going to get salmonella. So the internet said that, so it can't be wrong. So there is something in us that wants to cross the line. The commandments are there and they show us what God wants, but the commandments themselves don't help us resist them. They just tell us what God is looking for. And yet that wasn't enough. And so when Paul says the law was brought in so that sin would increase, it's not that God's trying to create more sin, but the law defines what sin is. And as soon as sin is defined, then we start to go, oh, wow, of those 613 laws, I have broken 605 of them this morning. And so the law is there to show us where we have crossed those boundaries. But the main reason for that is to show us that we can't do this on our own, that we need saving, that we have sinned. And so the law becomes the standard to point out that you are a sinner and I am a sinner. But God has a better solution than just to call you a sinner. He has a way to save us out of that. And where sin increases, Scripture says, grace increases all the more. There is always more grace than your sin. There is always more grace than your sin. It doesn't matter what you've done. There is always more grace. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. There is always more grace. There is always more mercy. There is always more forgiveness. And Jesus says, just trust me and follow me. Trust that my grace is enough for you. Trust that you've been forgiven. Trust that I bring you back to the tree of life. Trust me, and now follow me. Obey me and walk with me. Walk in my ways. Look at my example. Live the way that I have lived. But that's what Jesus calls us to do. Trust me. Put your hope in me. And now follow me and walk with me. As we get ready to wrap up, come on up, worship team. We're just about done here. We have an email address, questions at meadowbrook.ca. And I know this was a bit of a heady kind of theological message, but we need to do those sometimes. And if you have any questions, if you want to keep chatting, please let us know. Uh, we would be happy to answer your questions and get together if you want to do that. So where Adam failed, Jesus fulfilled everything that God wanted. Jesus is the reboot of humanity, where we were just not doing what God wanted us to be doing. We were crossing the line. We were walking into sin. We were choosing our own way. We were ignoring God. We were hurting each other. We were doing all of these things because we were following after the example of Adam. Jesus comes to reverse everything that Adam did. And we are now in process, in progress, not perfect, but we are in the process of being made completely new, completely renewed. And where the consequences of sin have fallen, God is looking to forgive and redeem and restore and set right where, where the wages of sin was death and evil and, and heartache and everything that goes with that. 
So we are not following after Adam anymore. We are following after Jesus, admittedly imperfectly, but we are following after the way of Jesus. And, and our job today is to look at our lives and say, where is Adam still at work? Where is Eve still at work in my life? Where am I still crossing those boundaries? Where am I still rejecting God? Where am I still going my own way? Where am I still seeing the consequences fall because of that? And then to look at our lives and say, okay, and where am I slowly but surely following more in the way of Jesus, becoming more like him, speaking like him, loving like him, serving like him, sacrificing like him. Because the follower of Jesus, that is who we are. We are no longer a part of the old way. We have been made a new creation, scripture says. Would you stand with me, please, as we get ready to worship? Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for uh, just uh, a tough sort of theological wrestling match a little bit today, but thank you for stretching us and for showing us new things, and I pray, Lord, as we uh, worship now and as we get ready to go, that Holy Spirit, beyond anything that has been said today, you will speak to us, speak to our hearts, Lord, and that you will make clear to us exactly what this means for us and that lord as we put our hope in you as we put our trust in you as we follow after you you will form us more and more into who we were meant to be from the very beginning that we would look less and less like adam and eve we would look more and more like jesus as we walk with you in your name we pray amen thank you pastor chris what a great reminder of the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us. And you know, when we, when we think about Jesus and maybe you come this morning and you're trying to understand who Christ is, who the Son of God is, and this idea that the sacrifice, the, the grave is empty, the, the stone has been rolled away. You know, the, the sacrifice that Jesus gave us is a free gift, but we have to accept that gift as well. We have to understand that what it means to follow Jesus is to proclaim he is the Son of God, to confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that he is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says this in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for his grace you have been saved through faith and is not from your own selves, it is the gift of God, not by the works that so no one can boast, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. What's amazing is the sacrifice of Christ is a free gift. And there's nothing we can do to earn it. There's nothing we need to do in our lives to earn it. We don't have to have longer devotionals. We can't outgive God, we can't outrun God, but we come fully in the gift that comes that is absolutely free and unconditional. And we need to recognize that and live in that vein each day because when we live in the freedom and the gift that Jesus is, and we understand that it is free, it's a gift of salvation, we don't live in legalism, we don't outdo God anymore, but we live in the freedom of that. So as you think about that in your life today, and understand that there's freedom in Jesus, to give your life to him and to follow him, it's an adventure, folks. It's not easy, but following Jesus is the greatest decision you'll ever make in your entire life. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that we can come together like this. Thank you that we are saved by grace and nothing that we can do to ever earn that. And Jesus, thank you that you are greater, far greater than Adam ever was. And we're grateful for that. And we ask Jesus, as we enter this week coming up, that you'd show us the grace in our lives, that we live in a way that honors you, that worships you. 
And Lord, for those who have come today that still don't fully understand what it means to follow you or they're living in a path that is all about them and it's just about the legalistic avenues of the church are following you, I pray in Jesus' name, you bring freedom, bring freedom so we can keep our eyes on you to understand that the grave is empty. There's power in the cross, but Jesus, the power comes in your name. And so we're grateful for that. So bless us this week. Give us your wisdom. And Lord, for those who have come today that want to chat or talk about anything that pertains to getting closer to you, to be free from those shackles, I pray that you'd have courage to come talk to someone after service or talk to a friend. But Lord, we pray the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives this week. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming. If you want to pray or talk to anybody, a few of us will be available to service. Have a great day.